WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. This is a special of edition, edition of The Reverend and the Rabbi, except this Thursday it is first up the top of the show, and it is just the Rabbi, Rabbi Justin David of Congregation B'nai Israel for two reasons. One is the Rabbi has just returned from a trip from Israel that I want to hear about, and I think that you, our listeners, want to hear about, and also because Justin's taking a sabbatical. Good for Justin. Bad for us. Um, we're going to miss you, and we want to you know, uh, hear what you have in mind and what the purpose of a sabbatical is and the like. But first, let's start. You were just in Israel. You were on, I guess, a peacekeeping, fact-finding mission, and I'd appreciate your sharing who you were with, what you were doing, why you were doing it, and the results. Lots of questions all packed in there. Tell us about your trip to Israel. Oh, well, well honored. So more properly, I would say the, the trip uh, was to Israel, but it was really to the West Bank. And it was to meet with uh, peace builders. Uh, and I realize that's a term that we need to clarify. Uh, but uh, peace builders and peace building organizations, uh, some of which are uh, primarily uh, generated by Palestinians and some which are joint Palestinian and Israeli. And uh, and when we talk about going to Israel and the West Bank, there's uh, a question of naming and, and what, what do the names mean? Uh, for me, Israel is everything uh, is, is the, is everything pre-1967. Uh, and that's, that's, those are the boundaries that are uh, recognized generally by the international community. And then the area that's called the West Bank, which is really from the Jordanian perspective because it's, uh, it's land on the West Bank of the Jordan River, on the other side of the West Bank of the Jordan River, um, which, uh, which was administered by Jordan until 1967. And then after the war, Israeli forces uh, took over the area. Um, that's called by many names. Um, uh, people uh, who live in Israel uh, who think that that land should be incorporated or annexed into Israel or have a spiritual connection to that land, uh, call it Judea and Samaria. Um, sort of more neutrally, uh, people both within Israel and outside Israel may refer to that area as the territories or the occupied territories. Um, Palestinians themselves uh, may, common, may commonly refer to that area, particularly if they live there, as Palestine. So um, though, though it may be controversial, my own inclination is to call, refer to that area as Palestine, uh, simply because the people who live there, that's what they call it. And that's how they refer to themselves. And when one travels in the West Bank, it culturally uh, feels like a Palestinian place. Arabic is spoken everywhere. Um, there's, uh, uh, although the common currency is the Israeli shekel, um, uh, it, it feels like a Palestinian national space. And so, uh, and so that's what I choose to call it in, in conversation. Um, so, uh, so this this is a trip that was organized about six months ago, not by any organization, but it was an ad hoc uh, committee of rabbis who wanted to go with the purpose of learning and bearing witness. And 
So there were 22 of us rabbis from all streams of Jewish life uh, with, the common, with the common goal, a common curiosity, uh, not just a curiosity, but a, a desire to um, see the situation, see the situation of occupation from, from a Palestinian perspective. Uh, and to do that, um, we stayed, um, we stayed in primarily Palestinian spaces. So for example, uh, we stayed in two places. Our lodgings were in two places. One was East Jerusalem, uh, which is a primarily Palestinian uh, area uh, of Jerusalem. And we stayed in a hotel that was Palestinian owned. Uh, and from there, we traveled into the West Bank, uh, you know, a little bit north and then further south to the area around Hebron. And then for the last two nights, we actually stayed in Bethlehem, which is in Palestine, in the West Bank. And we met with uh, a number of people guided by a number of different organizations, um, were um, shown some of the structural inequities up close, um, and also had the opportunity to um, speak to local Palestinians about projects of dialogue, projects of cooperation, uh, there were also moments of great joy um, on that trip through various things we did. And, um, and uh, each of us came back uh, with a commitment to share uh, our experience and our knowledge with uh, our communities to further the conversation and perhaps contribute to changing the narrative around what Israel and Palestine uh, mean, particularly to the Jewish community. When you were in the West Bank, uh, was there a sense of uh, being welcome, or was there issues, or there, was there an issue about your safety? Uh, can Israelis uh, travel freely and safely on the West Bank, or is, is an occupied as an occupied territory, uh, Israelis are not welcome? How, how does that work out in real life in real time? Yeah. So, so let let me uh, say unequivocally, as as guests, we were absolutely welcome. And uh, certainly every, um, you know, uh, every uh, Palestinian host we had uh, was um, deeply friendly and went over and above, uh, you know, w whatever they thought their obligation was to welcome us, to make us feel comfortable. Uh, it's a very common experience as um, a guest in any sort of Palestinian space, whether it's a community center um, whether it's a meeting, and all the more so if, if you're coming to someone's home, that you're that uh, you're given tea, you're given coffee, you're given food, um, and that's that's really a hallmark of Palestinian culture. So as as guests, we were absolutely welcome, um, and and we were also because of the nature of this trip, uh, we were explicitly invited to ask any question we want. Um, and you know, some of the hosts went out of their way to say, challenge me, I love to be challenged, right? Um, politically- Speaking uh, in English, we, speaking- Yeah, yeah, we, we spoke English. Uh, I mean, the politics of speaking Hebrew, that's another part of the conversation and worthy of, of uh, mentioning. Um, politically though, um, Israelis are actually forbidden uh, to go into the West Bank. They're uh, under the Oslo Accords, there are actually three areas in the West Bank. Area A, which is administered by the Palestinian Authority. Area B, which is under joint control of 
the uh, Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government, and Area C, which is completely administered by the Israeli government. Palestinians are free to go between areas A, B, and C, but anyone holding an Israeli passport is actually forbidden to go into those areas. Now, people do, uh, and they go in under different auspices. Um, you know, there, you know, there are Israelis who have more than one passport, and they may, you know, use their American passport or European passport uh, to go through. There are um, sort of unofficial ways to meet with people. There are sort of border zones where um, where where it's it's easier to meet. Uh, there there might be special permits. Uh, Palestinian uh, Israelis of Palestinian descent, Palestinian Israelis who have family in the West Bank um, may receive special permission uh, to go into the West Bank. So, um, you know, the telltale sign of an Israeli car is a yellow license plate with um, the flag of Israel on it. You'll see those in the West Bank, uh, and they're not just um, uh, army or government uh, vehicles. So, Is there a sense, let me ask you this, Justin, Justin, let me ask you this. Is there a sense, we often yeah. hear it in the West Bank as the occupied territory. Is there a sense when you go there of a military occupation? Is that what it feels like? Well, um, I can tell you what it feel. I can tell you what our Palestinian hosts said, and a little bit of of what I experienced. So our Palestinian hosts would would say it is a military occupation, and they would say it's a political occupation, and they would point to a number of different features of life in the West Bank specifically um, that that makes uh, both those realities absolutely clear. Including One, all the checkpoints and having to show their identification all the check, time, that sort of thing? Absolutely. So, so uh, certainly between Israel and the West Bank, there are checkpoints. And at those checkpoints, um, you know, Palestinians, uh, you know, Palestinians talk about being subjected to questioning that often serves no purpose uh, to be to being investigated, to being uh, surveilled in ways that actually serves no purpose. So if, if someone is a, uh, for example, if someone uh, is a Palestinian lives in the West Bank, but has a job working within Israel, um, at, you know, whatever work site, um, you know, why, uh, you know, why should they be subjected to questioning every day? about where they've been, who their family is, things that are completely irrelevant to any issues of, of uh, security. Um, all the more so if people are traveling to Israel uh, for medical care, which, which uh, Palestinians from the West Bank will occasionally do, or not occasionally, but frequently do. So that that's just a daily, uh, a part of daily life. Um, there are also um, checkpoints, there, there have been and there are checkpoints within the West Bank itself, uh, and those same questions get asked and, and um, at, at best it's experienced as a, a nuisance, uh, but more commonly and uh, it's, it's a humiliation. Um, but, but more, um, uh, but I would say more, even more intrusive than that, um, Palestinians will talk about um, the regular, um, you know, the, 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 the uh, the raids, I don't know what to call them, but the raids of, uh, of Israeli army units into their homes uh, purportedly to search for people, to search for weapons, 
that that is a regular occurrence, um, perhaps a little less so in certain parts of Area A um, that's under full Palestinian control. But we met with a man uh, who's a Palestinian nonviolent peace activist in Jericho, and he said Jericho is a quiet city. Uh, there's not, you know, as opposed to, let's say, Nablus, which right now uh, is experiencing um, you know, a, a new degree of, of conflict within the city. Um, but he says Pal uh, Jericho is a quiet city, city, and still, you know, there's the sense that Israeli army troops can come in any time uh, to people's homes and, and search and disrupt them in the middle of the night. Um, so it's, it's definitely feels like a military occupation, but it's also a political occupation because throughout the, 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 the uh, landscape of the West Bank, you have um, uh, Israeli civilian settlements, meaning towns, towns and villages, where the Israeli government has designated that this land can be developed as civ civilian communities where Israelis uh, and Jewish Israelis can live. And um, what one sees here, besides the disruption of the landscape, um, are some um, pretty stark inequities. So for example, um, water. Uh, it's clear that water is abundant uh, in these settlements because they're very green. There are all kinds of plantings that you see on the hillside and trees and bushes and you know swimming pools and things like that. Um, water is more water is provided to the settlements and at a, and that and at a lower cost than that water is made available to Palestinians who live in the West Bank. Uh, Palestinians in the West Bank will often have to conserve water. Um, and that becomes a problem, especially in the summer. Uh, the, the other, um, you know, inequities have to do with security and the right to build. Um, you know, so uh, in the West Bank, in order to build an addition to one's home or to build a new structure, uh, one has to uh, obtain a, a permit to do that. Uh, there are all kinds of legal impediments that prevent Palestinians from getting work permits. Uh, and so, you know, when things reach a breaking point, they do what anyone would do, they build anyway, um, in ways that would be perfectly legal for uh, settlers who live, you know, less than half a mile away. Uh, and then once they build, and I'm putting in air quotes, illegally, that will prompt, um, you know, that will prompt a, sum, uh, a summons from the Israeli government and then a demolition order. Uh, Rabbi, we need to take a break. Yeah. I want you to continue this description. When we get back, I want to ask you this question. You told you, us that your hosts asked you to challenge them. And what yeah. I would like to know is whether there is any hope for peace, in your opinion, and or how your hosts responded to questions about, if there were these questions, about the right to return and what that means. We're going to be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Champagne tasting, sip and stroll, holiday pops. 
What's going on? A look around the valley with provisions. The Pioneer Valley Symphony's Holiday Pops Concert, December 17th at Greenfield High School. Provisions Grand Champagne Tasting at Provisions Mill District, North Amherst. Taste sparkling wines from around the world, plus caviar and soft cheeses. It's free, Saturday, December 10th, 1 to 5. Meet the Grinch in the Grinch's Grotto. The Springfield Museum bring you Grinchmas magic all month. The Brattleboro Camarada presents Ensalada, Renaissance music of Latin America, Sunday, December 11th at the Brattleboro Music Center. Sip and Shop Stroll in downtown Amherst, a maker's market, dining deals, free horse-drawn carriage rides, Thursday, December 15th, 5 to 9. This is Jim Neal with What's Going On, a monthly look around at food and beverage, arts and music, and anything cool. What's Going On is presented by Provisions. Wine, beer, cheese, liquor at the foot of Crafts Avenue in downtown Northampton and in the Mill District in North Amherst. The holidays, baking, wrapping, decorating, and of course, shopping for that special gift. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. This holiday season, consider giving a private one-on-one personal training session with a Fitness Together gift card. Stop by our locations, Amherst or Northampton, to pick one up in person. Or give us a call and we'll drop one in the mail. Give a gift that keeps the ones you love fit and healthy. Happy holidays from all of us at Fitness Together. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, former college athlete and now arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. I'm proud to be one of the board-certified team of doctors who's ready to tackle any orthopedic or sports injury, from shoulders and elbows to knees and ankles and everything in between. Here's this week's injury wrap-up for your New England football team. Wide receiver Jacoby Myers suffered a shoulder injury during the Thanksgiving Day game in Minneapolis. He is questionable heading into Thursday night's showdown with Buffalo. Running back Damian Harris suffered a thigh injury Thanksgiving Day and was seen on the sideline with crutches. His status for Thursday is questionable. And starting center and team captain David Andrews continues to rehab a thigh injury he suffered two weeks ago. This week's injury wrap-up is brought to you by New England Orthopedic Surgeons. With convenient locations in Springfield, East Longmeadow, and now Northampton, you can trust we'll give you the best bona fide care. So visit anyortho.com to schedule your appointment today. Because at New England Orthopedic Surgeons, our team will get you back in the game. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel here in Northampton, who has just returned from a trip to the West Bank. I'd like to go back to the question that I posed to you just before the break, Rabbi, and I appreciate your description of the inequities the way in which Palestinians suffer, that's not too strong a word by any stretch, under the occupation. Um, What I'd like to know is your impression as to whether or not there is any common ground between uh, Israel, the government of Israel, and the Palestinian uh, political authorities uh, to achieve peace, either with a one-state or a two-state solution or whether there is this predominant view of a right to return that says, 
all of Israel is illegitimate. What happened in the late night after the Second World War, 1947, 1948, that's uh, the state of Israel is occupying Palestinian land. It's all Palestine, and Jews have to leave. You know, the Jews will be uh, pushed into the sea. That uh, old uh, 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 statement of uh, fear. And I'm wondering, of course, there are other views and many other views, uh, and I'm wondering whether your, what your impression is to whether or not there is any common ground at all. Yeah. Um, well, so let, let, me, let me slightly reframe what you're asking in the following way. One is that there, there's a whole, you know, uh, our listeners can go and read online about the cooperation between the Israeli government and the Palestinian security services. It's a whole, um, you know, known but, but kind of unwritten chapter about the cooperation between the, the security services of the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government to try and, um, you know, minimize uh, the threat of, of uh, violence. Um, where I look, because this is really, you know, who I who I know to the extent that I do. I I look at people I've had conversations with and people whom I've met, and the whole point of this trip was to not only uh, have kind of sustained personal exposure to the realities of, of occupation, but to have um, conversation and connection with Palestinians and Israelis who are actively working towards a different future. And the core of that future are human-to-human -human connections, even, even with different political understandings, and political understandings that are not merely rational, but deeply, deeply emotional. Uh, I have many examples of this. I mean, the, the, the professional peace builders who we met um, are, you know, um, incredibly um, generous, humanitarian, insightful, um, and um, are ready to welcome any person, uh, you know, uh, whatever their background, what, whatever their national affiliation, who wants to join them in common cause. Uh, sometimes that common cause is protest, sometimes it's dialogue, sometimes it's being willing to take a hike, literally a hike through, um, the, you know, the West Bank in a guided way. Um, but I, but, but I think what, I, what I'd like to do is share with you um, a moment that we had with one of our tour guides that was unintentional, revealing, and I think in its own way, uh, hopeful, as, as fraught as it was. And uh, this tour guide was a very, you know, very compelling um, woman in, in her, you know, kind of younger stage of her her life and uh, is married and uh, co comes from um, one of the Palestinian villages around Bethlehem and uh, speaks fluent French and English and has her degree and is studying for a master's degree. And um, at one point um, in the conversation, she was sharing her reaction to uh, something that we experienced together and used the word settlement to describe uh, a village or to describe a small city actually within what's generally considered Israel proper. And one of our group pointed that out to her 
And she reacted um, with some sarcasm and anger. And then she realized what she'd done because what she revealed um, in that comment and, and, her, and in her reaction was something that she didn't intend, which was a feeling that precisely all the land is considered occupied because um, you know, in the creation of the state of Israel, uh, 700,000 Palestinians were, uh, were, were, uh, became refugees from their homes and from their cities. And uh, many of those cities have since been destroyed. Some completely erased from memory, some preserved as parks, um, but there's been a, an erasure. Um, and, uh, but, I don't wanna say but, there's, there's not a but, because the but seems to contradict that reality. I don't mean to imply that. And yet, um, this you know this per person who was our guide was absolutely committed to a way of engaging such that she would share her Palestinian perspective, but with and and she and she is you know politically will advocate for the end to the occupation. Um, but she wants to do so in a way that engages people who have perspectives different from hers, whether they be uh, American Jews or European Jews or uh, people from the international community in general or, or even Israelis. So much so that, um, you know, she's married to someone who's a professional uh, Palestinian man um, who lives in Israel. And she and and they plan to have children, and so uh, she's learning Hebrew because she needs to be able to communicate with her children in the society in which they live as a family. So let me say this back to you: You're saying yeah. you're saying this is somehow if we have people to people dialogue and enough of it and it builds and it multiplies that maybe the the process itself yields a solution at some point without having some predetermined idea of where that dialogue goes? My belief is that when you reduce the invisibility and you foster these human-to-human -hu -human connections, the politics has to change. Because right now, the politics depends on invisibility and dehumanization. And so if, if, you, have, if you have projects that counter that, the politics will have to change. Maybe not in five years, maybe not in 10 years, but maybe slowly in a generation and maybe over 50 and 100 years. And there are people, Israelis and Palestinians, who were working for that change in mind. Rabbi, I really appreciate those words. In the last minute we have, you're taking a sabbatical. Tell us what you're doing and then we'll welcome you back in six months, but tell us. A sabbatical is a step back from work and it's an opportunity for a person to do whatever it is they need to do. For me, it's going to involve uh, some writing, uh, some traveling, some study, and um, the freedom to not be uh, expected to complete a schedule and, and meet with people and plan things like I do in my daily work life. It's a gift from the congregation. I'm grateful for it. It's my third time doing it. I always come back renewed and refreshed and reinvigorated with new ideas. 
and every human being should have a sabbatical paid for by their workplace rabbi justin david from congregation b'nai israel thanks so much for your time thanks for being with us every week and we can't wait for you to come back and hope you have a really successful and regenerative sabbatical thanks bill this is bill newman whmp For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. For the second time this week, a pedestrian has been struck by a vehicle in Chicopee. The accident happened around 4.45 p.m. yesterday on Chicopee Street, and the victim was taken to the hospital with serious injuries. A driver is being charged in connection with the deadly pedestrian crash that happened Monday night in Chicopee. 68-year-old William Madison of Chicopee died after being hit by a vehicle in the area of the 550 block of Chicopee Street around 5.30 p.m. That driver, 42-year-old Benjamin Gouraj of Chicopee, was arrested and charged with motor vehicle homicide while operating under the influence. South Hadley teachers and paraeducators have come to a tentative agreement with the district. Amy Foley, president of the South Hadley Education Association, tells the Gazette the paraprofessionals will have a 17.5% increase over a four-year contract and ETAs will see a 25% increase. Foley adds the paperwork still needs to be finalized. A cell tower in Heath will move forward after a settlement has been reached between the town and AT&T. According to the recorder, the situation began in September 2021 when the planning board denied AT&T's application to build a 180-foot cell tower on a 100-acre parcel on Knott Road with frontage on Row Road. Following the planning board's denial of the application, AT&T brought a lawsuit against the town in October. The select board then got involved, saying it was the body responsible for legal proceedings and started negotiating with AT&T for a smaller cell tower instead of bringing the case to court. Partly to mostly sunny and windy today, another round of gusts over 30 miles per hour, especially during the middle of the day, a high of 40 to 44. Scattered clouds tonight, 20 to 26, mostly sunny tomorrow, a high of 44 to 48. Rain returns for Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los demócratas de la Cámara dieron paso a una nueva generación de líderes el miércoles con el representante Hakeem Jeffries elegido para ser el primer estadounidense negro en encabezar un partido político importante en el Congreso en un momento crucial cuando la presidenta de la Cámara de Representantes, Nancy Pelosi, y su equipo se retiran el próximo año. Mostrando una rara unidad de partido después de sus derrotas electorales de mitad de periodo, los demócratas de la Cámara pasaron sin problemas de un líder histórico a otro, eligiendo al neoyorquino de 52 años, quien prometió hacer las cosas en el nuevo Congreso, incluso después de que los republicanos ganaron el control de la Cámara. La votación a puerta cerrada fue unánime por aclamación. Es raro que un partido que perdió las elecciones intermedias se reagrupe tan fácilmente y contrasta con la agitación entre los republicanos que luchan por unirse en torno al líder republicano Kevin McCarthy como nuevo presidente de la Cámara mientras se preparan para tomar el control cuando el nuevo Congreso se convoca en enero. En otras informaciones, la Cámara de Representantes de los Estados Unidos tomó medidas urgentes para evitar la huelga ferroviaria nacional que se avecinaba el miércoles y aprobó un proyecto de ley que vincularía a las empresas y los trabajadores a un acuerdo propuesto que se alcanzó en septiembre, pero que fue rechazado por algunos de los 12 sindicatos involucrados. La medida fue aprobada por una votación de 290 a 137 y ahora se dirige al Senado. Si se aprueba allí, será firmado por el presidente Joe Biden, quien instó al Senado 
a actuar con rapidez. Los grupos empresariales y la Asociación Comercial Association of American Railroads elogiaron el voto de la Cámara para bloquear la huelga, pero instaron a los senadores a resistirse a agregar tiempo por enfermedad al acuerdo. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome back to our show and the studio, Corinne Dimas, who is a Northampton-based award-winning author of some 35 books for adults and children, including numerous picture books. She's a professor emerita at Mount Holyoke and a fiction editor for the Massachusetts Review. I would love to know from you, Corinne. Welcome back, and thank you very much. And part of the reason she is here today is because we want you to know about her new book and her upcoming uh, presentation and book uh, launch. Uh, not book launch, it's because it's been launched, but a uh, book event uh, here in uh, here in, in Western Massachusetts at the Carl. And the title of the book is The Perfect Tree. I want to start by asking you, Corinne, a question that is usually, let me admit, a terrible question to ask <laughs> authors at the oh, beginning. Oh, I love terrible questions. Um, okay. No, no, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, but there's actually this really interesting story, backstory here that I want you to share. And the question is, what inspired you to write this book? Why did you want to write this book? How did this book come to you? There are lots of ways to ask this bad first question. But there's actually an interesting backstory here to The Perfect Tree. So share that with our listeners if well, you would, please. Many years ago, I bought my daughter a little matryoshka at, at a local toy store, and it had a crack in it. And I figured, uh, you know, I was a young professor then, didn't have a lot of money. It was on the sale table. So I figured I better write a story to accompany this doll. So I wrote her a story called The Littlest Matryoshka. And, uh, it's and a matryoshka is what? Uh, it's a little wooden nesting doll. And uh, it started a tradition. So I gave her that book. I made it. I did my little amateurish watercolors. And back in those days, I think I even typed it and glued it up and I hand sewed it. And so then she started... Boy, are you a good mom. Oh, she, <laughs> she expected a book every Christmas. And as she got older, uh, I would give her a, ch a few chapters of a novel. And, and then for her birthday, she'd get some more chapters. And, and this went on. And uh, some of the books, like The Little Smatryashka, which uh, became a book and illustrated by the wonderful Northampton illustrator, Catherine Brown, became books. Some of them were just from the kids. And they stayed around. And then now I have grandchildren. I have four grandchildren. And, and they, the, they each expect a book at Christmas? They expect a book. Each one of them expects a book for Christmas. And, a different uh, book? <laughs> <laughs> yes. have to write four books? Yeah, that's why ah. Santa's workshop is real busy at my house right wow. now. Do and, they have to be Christmas books, or can well, they be about any topic? they can be any topic. Okay. I usually try to, sometimes I'll give them a little present, like if it's a book about little dogs, I might get a little stuffed dog that goes with it, but often it's just the book. So um, many years ago, 12 years ago, I wrote my oldest granddaughter, Morgan, a book called The Perfect Tree. And uh, it has taken 12 years for it to turn into 
a published book. And uh, she's, about the time it takes to grow a Christmas tree. It's about the time, right? About the time to turn into a teenager. So fortunately, she's old enough now not to be embarrassed anymore. <laughs> so um, in fact, it's been rather sweet because I've done some you know book events with her, and you know she looks on you know very kindly and you know smiles and and it's interesting to look back and to see when I when I've taught courses to Mount Holyoke students about the writing of children's literature to see the difference between that original manuscript and how you shape it over time. I mean, people think, oh, you just write it, but you write it and you rewrite it and you rewrite it. And as you can see, this book has changed from the perfect Christmas tree to the perfect tree. And I think it became much more an exploration of the concept of perfection, which is, you know, a good thing to think about at Christmas time. What makes something perfect? Is there such a thing as perfect? I want to ask you about that. I'd also ask you before, want to ask you before we leave this topic about the original present that you made for your daughter because the original present has drawings. Oh, yes. <laughs> and what I've learned is that for the most part, for children's book authors and children's books, the authors often don't see or work with the illustrator. And yet you had some very definite ideas, clearly, at least 12 I, years ago, about what the illustrations should be. So well, I tell had, us how that gets reconciled. Well, my illustrations are, are really naive illustrations, and they're just a way to, you know, to put something on the page. And part of what's amazing about publishing a picture book uh, is that you end up teaming up with an illustrator, and you end up seeing how another mind takes your text and turns it into something wonderful. And each of my books, most of them have been illustrated uh, by different people. So uh, when Penelope got this text, Penelope Dullahan, who's an illustrator whom I've never met in person, she lives in Indiana, she's selected by the publisher. In other words, authors don't pick their illustrators unless they happen to be an author-illustrator, which I'm not. I'm a mere author. Um, the publisher picks the illustrator, and then your text, you, you've basically sold your text, and you're turning it over to another creative person. And it's out of your hands, and it's kind of scary. I mean, uh, you know, they take your story, and off they go, and they imagine it the way they saw it. And as you can see, Bill, it's not the way I saw it. And of course, I'm not a talented artist, so I did little, you know, little plain little drawings just to entertain the kids. Um, but Penelope kind of took the story and she must have just kind of dreamed it. And she created a, a really magnificent book that is, it's its own art form. And I, I really love that. And it, it's really fun to, to feel that there are two of you who are working on the same concept and how it, and how it turns out. Before we leave the topic of your drawings, I'm going to show uh -oh. <laughs> I'm going to show Monty your drawings. Monty does sketches every day. Uh-huh. I haven't and done one today though. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I gotta work on it for the last segment of the show. That said, uh, these are not stick figures. No, these, these are, are beautiful watercolors. <laughs> uh, little, little, little sweet little watercolors. Um, in the age of the internet now, um, my husband um, has helped me. We'll scan them into the computer, and we can do sort of cute little things, you know, cute little things with them. Um, so right now, I mean, if you guys have any suggestions, I have four books that I need to write. You know? <laughs> well, you can do what Taylor Swift did, which is, you know, you release this version of the book and That's call right. it the Perfect Tree, Corinne's version. 
version. That's right. And Corinne's like make money, do an end around around the uh, the publisher and things like that. Well, I do have a confession, and that is that my oldest granddaughter reads the kind of books that I don't write. Uh, you know, longer, more fantasy and things like that. It's just not my territory. So I've gotten away with writing a poem for her for Christmas, which ah. I did last Christmas and, and this Christmas. And, and she's very polite about it. <laughs> she writes some poetry herself, so that's kind of nice. And, and the other thing is um, one grandchild is um, nine and the other is 10. And last Christmas I did some double duty and I wrote a story which was really from the points of view of two kids, but it was really the same story. So they each got the same concept book and it kind of merged and some of the dialogue in the middle was the same and then it went you know it went in either direction so I did a little bit of you know it was a little bit of um, tricky double dealing and um, I think this year I might do something similar like maybe um, uh, my one granddaughter suggested I do a book that would be in the form of a sort of a graphic novel or maybe it would be um, she thought it could be text messages between two characters the whole novel so I got my work cut out for me, though. I wish my, I wish my kids were keeping my parents as uh, in, engaged in making sure that creative energies are still all flowing. You know? Well, it's a little bit like back when you were in college and you were writing a term paper, you know, and you had a deadline and you were pulling an all-nighter. That's the way it sometimes feels in my house. And then I'm running out to the copy center to get them bound or, or you know, or put together, you know, the last minute before Christmas. So. We are speaking with Corinne Dimas, whose new book is The Perfect Tree. Before we leave, I want, and first let me tell you, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about perfection and this book. And it is a beautiful, moving children's book. It really, really is. But first, you have an event at the Carl with this book. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, on December 10th, they'll be at the Eric Carl Museum. They have a story time, and I love reading to kids. I've been there uh, many times before, and um, I'll be reading The Perfect Tree, and then the, the Carl, in their inimitable way, will be doing some kind of very interesting craft project. So it will be really fun. I'll be signing books, but mostly meeting with families, which is what I love. That's the best part of writing for kids. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear the story of The Perfect Tree. We're going to learn more about this tale. It's really a beautiful book. You want to hear this. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families, and we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 101.5, and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Champagne, sparkling wine, cava, prosecco. If it's bubbly, it's really good. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The three main grapes of Champagne, if correct me if I'm wrong, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, although there are a bunch of other ones that nobody really ever uses <laughs> hardly at all. That is 100% correct. A lot of the time they're made with Pinot Noir, which is a red grape, even though it doesn't look very red. Right. Juice is basically the same color, just like we are on the inside. Oh, I like that. No. Hold the cork, turn the bottle. Don't yes. hold the bottle, try to, to wiggle that cork out. Cava is a great value because they make it just the same way that they make champagne. The value's there. And it's from Spain. This is also a way to make something a special occasion, not just for a special occasion. There's some 
something about champagne and sparkling wine in general that gives you that lift. It's like a fizzy lifting drink. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street, Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits, State Street, Northampton. It is simply impossible, says the Boston Globe, to imagine an audience that wouldn't enjoy what they do. Cherish the ladies, bringing their Celtic Christmas show to UMass December 2nd. Cherish the ladies, the Irish-American supergroup formed in New York City in 1985, celebrating the rise of women in the Irish music scene. The sweetest hours the dear eyes Led by Joni Madden, Cherish the Ladies delivers a rousing blend of traditional music, captivating voices, and propulsive step dancing. For tickets, UMass Fine Arts Center website. Cherish the Ladies, Celtic Christmas, Friday, December 2nd, 7.30 p.m. in the Frederick C. Tillis Performance Hall at UMass. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with mm-hmm. Corinne Dimas, whose new book, whose new picture book, is The Perfect Tree. She will be at the R. Carl Museum of Picture Book Art for a reading and a presentation, a story time on December 10th. What time? 10 o'clock in the morning. And The Perfect Tree. I'm sorry, and I rarely, rarely regret not having cameras and being a television show as opposed to a radio show. But this is one time I really wish that our listeners could see this book because the illustrations are moving and they are brilliant. They can go to my website, which is com, and they can click on the, the perfect tree little icon and end up at the perfect tree page and they can see some of the pictures there. Um, and there's a little, a little uh, video too, a little uh, thing that goes through. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to uh, read a bit of The Perfect Tree for us, and then we'll want to talk about the, actually, the big question, that, or the big questions that this apparently very easy-to-read-for-children <laughs> book raises. So you want to read a sure, little for I'd us? Love to. I'll read a little in the beginning, and then maybe I'll, I'll hone in on that big question. On the day before Christmas, Bunny made a string of red berries and cut out a shiny star. Then she put on her muffler and mittens, and set out to find the perfect Christmas tree, one that was just her size. Squirrel was collecting pine cones in the woods. Where are you off to this morning, he asked. I'm looking for the perfect tree, said Bunny. A perfect tree should be bushy, said Squirrel, just like my tail. Try looking in the meadow. So Bunny went off to the meadow to look for the perfect tree. She found a tree that was just her size but it wasn't bushy like Squirrel's tail. Mole heard Bunny passing by and poked her nose out of her hole. What are you looking for, asked Mole. I'm looking for the perfect Christmas tree, said Bunny. A perfect tree should have a point on the top for a star. 
Just like my nose, said Mole. I don't get out much, but I believe <laughs> you'll find one in the far field. And now I'll skip ahead to where um, Bunny meets Deer. Deer came wandering out of the thicket. What are you looking for, asked Deer. I'm looking for the perfect Christmas tree, said Bunny. What makes it perfect, asked Deer. It should be just my size. It should be bushy. It should have a point on top for a star. It should be the greenest green, and it should smell like Christmas, said Bunny. Did you look in the meadow, asked Deer. Yes, said Bunny. Did you look in the far field? Yes, said Bunny, and I looked along the river, and I looked all over the mountain. Maybe there isn't a perfect tree, said Deer. Or maybe I just haven't found it yet, said Bunny. So that's where the <laughs> the big question comes up, Bill. <laughs> oh, and you leave the listeners hanging. I'll leave them hanging. <laughs> How does this re- become resolved in a heartwarming way? Okay. The book's so, available at your local bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, how do you think children react to this question that Bunny is trying to resolve in both a pract- in a practical way uh, what is perfect? What makes the perfect well, tree? The how does that resonate? How does that? How, how do your younger listeners and readers react? Well, it's interesting. One of the places I did a book event, High Five Books, in um, up in in Florence, had the kids doing art projects afterwards and creating their perfect trees. So I got to look and to see. And it was very interesting to see how subjective that idea of, of perfection is and how kids really grasp that. Everybody, as all the animals in the story, has a different idea of what makes perfect. And certainly in this era of Christmas where we're all out there, you know, being told we should buy this and buy that and find the perfect gift. I mean, that's really the, the motto, find the perfect gift. Um, it's really nice to think that perfection is something else, something maybe intangible. And it's something that's, you know, something that's, that's, each individual has an idea of perfect, but then you have to really get back to the question, does perfect matter? I mean, are you, are you, are you really going to spend your time struggling to make something perfect, or are you going to be able to find happiness in something that's less than perfect? And um, it was interesting. I went tree hunting with my own grandkids who were out there at the tree farm running around going, just my size, bushy of squirrel's tail, <laughs> smelling the trees. This one smells like Christmas. But really, the joy was in finding a tree and, and the idea of celebrating a holiday together. And what I'd like with this book is for kids to think about the other ways that experiences can be perfect. They don't have, it doesn't have to be a perfect tree. It has to be maybe something else that makes you feel complete, that makes you feel happy. One other aspect of the story that struck me is that all of the animals who made a suggestion about what the perfect tree should look like really made those suggestions based on who they are Absolutely. and their experience. <laughs> and then they grow. That's not how the book presents it, of course, <laughs> but they do. They come to a different realization of perfection that is outside of their own world. And I'm wondering if that was intentional or that just came as part Absolutely. of the story. In fact, I'd love that as a blurb. Would you put that in a blurb? <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's really it. I mean, you know, whether it's a, a bushy tail or a pointy nose or, you know, or a perfect color, um, each one sees perfection some way connected to who they are and what, what their idea is. But then they also, 
realize there's something else that's happening here. And Christmas, of course, is, is a time when people sometimes actually do get out of their, their usual, their usual uh, ruts of life, and, and, and there's something that happens. It's magical, too. It has to do with people being together. It has to do with companionship. It has to do with love. It has to do with all of those things that we kind of like about Christmas when it's at its best. Was that part of the original story, or is that something that evolved and grew over the last dozen years that this, <laughs> this, book, well, has, this that book has lived within you and, and, and without you as well? <laughs> the message was always there. What took some time, Bill, over the 12 years was to find every animal and to find the perfect thing. And when I got oh, to Oh, dear. The, you're a, it turns out you're a perfectionist trying to make the book it. perfect. You got it. After all got, this. When I got to the greenest green, I was really stumped. You find me an animal that's out there that's in our natural world that's the greenest green. And then uh, I was looking at my bird feeder and there came cardinal and I realized that it wasn't the greenest green. It was color that counted. And so I could use a red animal to, to make that point. And that was a tremendous relief. But that took years before that discovery <laughs> happened. <laughs> so, so if someone's out there and has an animal that would be the greenest green, where can they reach you? <laughs> or if they're red green colorblind, that's, <laughs> that's just perfect. That's, that's exactly. That also works. Okay, tell us, you're at, you'll be at the Carl on December 10th? I will. At at 10 o'clock, and it'll be there for story time, and then the Carl will have a craft uh, program for kids afterwards. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Corinne Dimas. The book is The Perfect Tree, available at your local independent bookstore, and she will be at the Carl on December 10th in the morning. Thank you so much for your time today and for this absolutely beautiful, beautiful book. I love being here. Thank you. And this you. beautiful story. Network. 1015-1400-1240 WHMP. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to Talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.